You can start by turning to Matthew chapter 26. I'll get there in a little bit. Over the past year and a half, almost two years, at times on Sunday morning, we've been looking at what it means to be a disciple. And with missionary conference coming up, it's a key subject, whether you think it is or not. On our banner up here, notice the verse, His command arts concern is based on the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples. And the reminder is you can't make disciples if you're not being a disciple. And so even though we are disciples and we accepted Christ, we need to understand we need to be what we are to be able to make disciples or we won't do it. So at times on Sunday nights, when I've had the opportunity to speak, we've taken some time to look at some in the New Testament who we know are called disciples. Many times, some of you have heard me say this before, we look at people in Scripture and we tend to think they're way far beyond us. These guys were way more spiritual than we were. They had many more advantages than we do to be more spiritual, and we don't understand, realize it's really the opposite. We have many more advantages than they had. But in spite of that, we're told in Scripture, these guys are just like us. They're not any different, and we want to remind ourselves of that tonight. Remind you why we're given Scripture. Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And I hope especially as you've looked occasionally at some of these disciples in Scripture, the main thing it's given us is hope. If we see how God's worked with them, we have hope for how God's going to work with us. And that's the purpose of the examples that he gives us, why he chooses the ones he has chosen to give us in Scripture. So tonight we're going to look at the disciple John. And you may think, I've got this guy down, no problem. Well, hopefully you do. But still it's important we study him and understand why he's elaborated on in the New Testament quite a bit for us to get an idea of what the example is from him that we should look at. Now if I ask you what his occupation was, you can probably all tell me. What was he? Some of you don't know. Try that again. Now you can read it. Fisherman. So you understand he was probably fairly rugged. Fairly hard-edged. This was not an easy job back at this time in this culture. So we know he was a working man, basically. Although he had a few other advantages that we'll talk about in a few minutes other than that. We understand from what we can tell, he's the youngest of the disciples. Possibly, probably in his early 20s. Where all the rest of them were a little older than that. And some of them may be quite a bit older than that. But in his case, from what they can tell, because he dies later in 95 AD, that he was probably the youngest of the disciples. We know his brother was, right? It always talks about James and then his brother, John. James is the older brother. John, of course, the younger brother. They were called together. But it's interesting. As you read through the Gospels, you find out more than being called James and John, they're called something else. You're here in Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, 
he began to be sorrowful and troubled. It's interesting as you read, many times James will be called the son of Debedee, then John his brother, but many other times, both in Mark and Luke, they're only referred to as the, the sons of Zebedee. You know that's the father's name, right? But the idea here is, seems to be, everybody seemed to know who Zebedee was because they're always saying these two guys are the sons of Zebedee as if everybody knows who Zebedee was. The only other disciple that talks about what his father's name was was the other James, and I think it talks about his father just to differentiate him from James and John. So you know there are two different Jameses. But this one with James and John, they're quite regularly only called just like here, the sons of Zebedee, rather than calling them by name. Now here's something interesting that may tell us he's well known, not just in the area they worked, which would be Capernaum and Galilee at the sea, possibly as far south as Jerusalem, Back at Jesus' arrest, later on, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. And we know that's John referring to himself in his gospel or never names himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Interesting, for some reason... John or his family was well known even to the high priest, even as far as Jerusalem. Which it would explain why they're always called the sons of Zebedee, like everybody knows who this is. So he's got a little advantage here of some of the other guys. He's got some ins that some of the other guys don't have, including Peter. He has to get Peter in here. Look over in Mark chapter 1. We know James and John were called together when they were fishing, right? And we know they were partners pretty much with Simon, Peter, and Andrew. But something else we see in Mark chapter 1, we're talking about his father Zebedee, it says, and going a little further, he saw James, verse 19, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately Jesus called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is not a normal financial situation. It wasn't just these four guys in the boats. They evidently worked for their father, and he's financially well off enough to have hired servants. So they left him, but he still had hired servants to take care of the, of the job that they were doing. So somewhat, even though John's a hard-working guy, he's a working stiff, evidently the business was doing well enough to hire servants. So it's not your normal financial situation that most of these guys were going through. So his father was Zebedee. Mother's name was Salome. Look back in Matthew 27, a couple of chapters back, to your left. And you know you're going to lots of places tonight, right? That's why Sunday night is good for that. You don't have time to sleep. 55, Matthew 27, says, There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. This is at the cross ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. One of the women at the cross is James and John's mother, and we know it's Salome because Mark in Mark 15 and 16 names her. So we get the name later. We don't get the name here from Matthew, but we know what her name was. We're pretty sure, even though she's not named in this one, that she's part of this group that's mentioned in Luke 8 says the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. 
Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. There were a number of ladies who supported Jesus and the disciples, went around with them financially and provisionally providing for them. Now again, that would make sense that Salome be part of this group because her husband evidently had the finances to support this. And she's using those finances to support Jesus. So not only James and John are with Jesus, their mother is going around with Jesus as part of these women who are going along with them. Now, back to John. We know John also was one of Jesus' inner circle with two other guys. Who are the other two, uh, other two guys with John? Peter and James, right? We're at the inner circle. We already saw back in Matthew 26 that they were the only three who went to the garden of Gethsemane. I'll read to you from Matthew 17. It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So one of the only, the only three who got to go with Jesus to transfiguration, one of those was John. Go to your right to Mark 5. A story we looked at Sunday morning a couple of Sundays ago. Dealing with Jairus' daughter, the ruler of the synagogue. So in Mark 5... You look at verse 35, while Jesus is still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And later, only those three and the parents get to go into the house with Jesus. So John is part of this inner circle that Jesus exclusively at some of the most important events has them come. In fact, John possibly was somewhat as close to Jesus that other guys tried to use John to get inside information. John 13, Last Supper, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, One of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another and certain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Since John's closest, Peter's trying to use John to get some inside information. Find out who this guy is. We want to know which of us is going to be the one to do it. So interesting, isn't it? So here's his background. Here's what we know about him personally. Now, what do we know about what he was like, his personality? You were singing tonight. What was the theme of the songs you were singing tonight? They didn't get it. You want to do it all again so they can figure it out? What was the theme again? Love. And if you ask most people from reading John's writings, what do you most think about with John? And is that usually the word that comes up? Love, or what phrase that I've already shown you in a verse? The disciple that Jesus loved. And so we get this picture of John, right? At Jesus' side, reclining at Jesus' side, dealing with love. Well, go to Mark 3. Verse 13, when he calls the 12 apostles. 
And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. The name Peter means what? Rock or stone. So that's somewhat of a compliment here. You understand that? That's a positive. James and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Well, that doesn't seem as positive as rock. In fact, the word there for thunder comes from a Greek word meaning commotion or tumult, which is why they translate it thunder. But if you hear that phrase, sons of thunder, what are some of the words that maybe come to your mind thinking about this? Just by the way, this is Jesus describing James and John. You understand that? So Jesus pretty well knows what they're like. So this is what he calls them, sons of thunder. And you would say, what? how would you describe them then? Loud. You have to use your outdoor voice. Noisy. What was that one? Okay, instigator. Aggressive. When you say that, would you use any nice words with it, maybe? There you go. Strong. Enthusiastic. Right? Go getters. When you say that, not lazy, not just laying back. Always stirring something up. I want to ask if anybody here should be named Sons of Thunder. You got somebody in your mind, don't say it. But I'll use one word here. I'll use the word passionate. Okay? There is no doubt they were noisy, active, aggressive, but because evidently they were passionate, both James and John. They were active guys. Go to Mark 10. Let's see a second characteristic. Second characteristic you're going to see of John is he's ambitious. Verse 35 of Mark 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, every time, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one of your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So there's some ambition. We want to sit at your right and left hand. Now, look at verse 42, just so you understand probably what they were thinking about, because Jesus has to correct them here. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. So you understand that's probably what they're thinking about. They were ambitious enough that we want positions of power and authority. We want to rule over at your side what's important here. And we're ambitious enough to ask you for it. Now, with their ambition comes confidence. Because Jesus says in verse 38, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, what? Yes, we can. We are able. I mean, these guys, no doubt. There is no doubt we can do this. We are confident in our ability to do whatever comes. 
Verse 37, we just read that. Grant us to sit one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. So they had an interest in being part of Christ's glory. They understood in their minds, they thought, what was coming. And they wanted to be a part of that. And let's see one more. Back in Mark 9. You have to look back one chapter, verse 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John has an interest in truth, and the idea here is he's not following the true teacher. Remember, these disciples would follow the rabbi they thought was teaching the right stuff, was teaching the most correct stuff. And so these 12 are following Jesus, thinking this is the one who has the truth. And so here he's basically saying... This one guy wasn't with us, so he's not interested in the same truth we are. You understand this is a big part of John, because in his gospel, he'll use the the Greek word for truth 25 times, and he'll use it 20 times in his letters, in his epistles. So 45 times in his gospel and epistles, he will use this idea of truth. That's something he is greatly interested in, that you follow the truth. Now, you look at this list and you say, isn't that the kind of guy you'd want for to be a disciple? You shake your head, yes. Passionate, ambitious, confident, want to be part of God's glory, interested in truth. That's a guy that seems to line up with what we would say a disciple should be, wouldn't he? Well, these are all good things to kind of take them in context, aren't they? So let's see some problems, because some of our supposedly good characteristics of our personality can uh, be problems if it's used the wrong way. So here in Mark 9, 38, we see John saying to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. He's got passion, but no patience. We tried to stop this guy. Because he wasn't doing what we thought he should be doing. It's not the first time they do this. You understand that? In Luke 18, and this is all of them, wasn't just John, says the people were bringing infants to Jesus that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. They think they're bothering Jesus. They shouldn't be doing this. Stop it. We have no patience. You're taking the master's time. Of course, Jesus called them to him saying, let the little children come to me, don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So he rebukes that, but in their mind, they need to stop anything that's going to be a problem. So he's got plenty of passion, not much patience. We'll see more of that in a little bit. He's got plenty of confidence, but no concern. Notice here in John, yeah, John nine again, Mark nine again. Jesus said to him, "Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following you." Is that what it says? So you're looking up here. You have no idea. I could have said the wrong thing, and you don't even care. So he better follow in scripture. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. There's his confidence. But there's no concern for this guy at all. This guy needs to be stopped. We don't even think about him. He's not one of us. 
We'll see that again later with another one. Stick something here in Mark 9. We'll be right back in a little bit. Go over to Luke chapter 9. This one some of you are more familiar with. Luke 9, verse 51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. First of all, what people are you dealing with here? Who are these guys? Samaritans, which the Jews didn't look favorably on anyway. So number one, in their minds, they were throwaway people as it was, but number two... They weren't receiving Jesus the way John thought they should. And so instant solution should be what? I have no concern for these people. Let's just turn them into crispy critters. Have fire come down. Now, where'd they get this idea of fire coming down from heaven? Remember what story they're thinking of? Yeah, they're thinking of Elijah, but they're not thinking of Elijah with the prophets of Baal. You're thinking of that, where the fire comes down the altar. That's not the one he's thinking of. If you can go three pages at once, this is real fun. Go to 2 Kings 1 for a second. Because I want to show you a little difference between this passage and what they said. In 2 Kings 1, verse 2, you got Ahaziah. Ahaziah is a king of what? Anybody have, want to take a guess? What area do you think is a king of? Samaria. This is a Samaritan. He's ill. He sends some of his people to find out from Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether he's going to recover or not. And God intervenes in this and tells Elijah to send a message to Ahaziah. Isn't there a god in Israel? And so when the messengers come back, the king's upset, and he sends these guys after Elijah. Verse 9, the king sent to him the captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. How do you deal with Samaritans? Fire from heaven. Happens again right after this. Then the third guy comes and figures out, i got to plead for mercy for my life. But here's where they're getting it. And notice what Elijah says. Let fire come down from heaven. Go back to Luke, if you can get there. And they said, Lord, do you want... Let me see the next word. Us to tell fire to come down from heaven. Elijah said, let fire come down from heaven. If God's wrath wants to be down on these guys, fine. They're saying, we're confident enough, we can call fire down from heaven and we'll fry these guys. Plenty of confidence, don't they? They don't lack for confidence at all, but there's no concern for the Samaritans or other people that aren't like them. Go back to Mark 9. 
They have ambition, but their problem is it's ambition connected with pride. We've just seen that in their confidence. They're awful proud, proud of themselves. But you remember what the disciples were always arguing about, right? Mark 9, 33 and 34. They come to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued one another about who's the greatest. Which of us will be the greatest one? They have ambition, but they also got plenty of pride. Do you think some of that came also from being part of the inner circle of Peter, James, and John? Do you think that was maybe a little bit of a problem? I think so. Interesting. Remember, they were the only three that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And when they come down from the Mount, this is what happens in Matthew 17. And so think about these three guys reacting to this. They weren't here for this. When they came to the crowd, that's Peter, James, John, and Jesus, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often in the water, and I brought him to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. What do you think the three thought of the other nine? If we were here, this wouldn't have happened. Here's Jesus talking about these nine couldn't do it, and these nine are faithless. So they definitely had some pride. Back in Mark 10, we read this in verses 35 to 37, that James and John come up to Jesus, ask him, we want what you, whatever you want to ask of us. And you realize from Matthew 20, they also brought a secret weapon. Everybody remember what the secret weapon one that they brought in this one? Who'd they bring? Their mother. They didn't just ask. They had their mother ask. And you understand now why they'd have their mother ask? She was one of the ones who was supporting Jesus. And they had no shame asking their mother. How about asking him for me? You ask him and then we'll ask him. You understand from verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. James and John wanted to make sure they got what they wanted before anybody else got what they wanted, what they thought they wanted. Interesting. They thought they deserved it more than the other ten. And the other ten were upset about it. There is a little bit of an entitlement mentality here that they have that we deserve this more than anybody else. Well, they wanted to be part of Jesus' glory. But they wanted glory without suffering. You're here in this same passage where they ask. They want to sit one on the right hand and one at the left in your glory. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. And in verses 39 and 40, after they say, oh, we can do this, Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. 
Somebody has said this, their problem was in desiring to obtain the position more than they desired to be worthy of the position. They wanted the position, but they didn't really want what came with it. And Jesus understood that at this point. In fact, you know what happened in Mark 14. What happened at Jesus' arrest with all the disciples? Yeah, 14.50, right? After Jesus is arrested, verse 50 said, They all left him and fled. They all ran for their lives. Oh, we want glory, but we don't want any suffering that comes with it. He wanted truth, but it was truth without love. We looked at the passage in Mark 9 where he tried to stop this guy. Because, teacher, we saw someone in verse 38 casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. He was not following us. Because anybody not for us is against us. And so he may not be following truth, And we don't have any love for him because if he's not for us, he's against us. Look at Jesus' answer just for interesting here in verse 39. Jesus said, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Isn't it interesting? Jesus tells him the opposite. That's not how you're supposed to think. You don't think whoever's not for us is against us. You think this, the one who's not against us is for us. That's the one you should be for, not against. Interesting turnaround. But he was interested in truth without love. We're not going to go back to Luke chapter 9, but with the Samaritans, were they following truth? No, they wouldn't receive Jesus. There's no doubt they weren't receiving the truth, and yet you can see James and John have no love for these guys. Let's just bring down fire and wipe them out. Now you look at this list. Passion without patience, confidence without concern, ambition with pride, glory without suffering, truth without love. And now our question is, why would Jesus pick this guy as a disciple? Why would you want this guy as a disciple? Well, we know the obvious answer from Scripture, don't we? Ephesians 1, 4-6. Same, same reason he wants us as disciples, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why would you choose a guy like this? Number one, because of his love. In love he did this. Number two, his purpose, the purpose of his will. Number three, so he gets the praise to the praise of his glorious grace. You realize it reminds us he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Did he know our strengths and weaknesses before he chose us? It's no surprise. John was no surprise to Jesus when he chose him. Just like we're no surprise. 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us of this, that God chose what is weak in the world or what's foolish in the world. Number one, to confound the strong and confound the wise. There's no doubt about that. But in chapter 2, he also says this, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. If we chose based on our wisdom, John wouldn't make the list. Oh, by the way, neither would we. Nobody would make the list that's there. And so why choose him? Because God has his purposes and has his love. Turn to 1 John chapter 1. We know John changed, didn't he? This list we just saw is not the John we think of when we think of John now. He continues to be passionate his whole life. That never seems to change. That passion doesn't go away, even when he's in his 90s, when he's in the book of Revelation. But now you've got some patience. Is he telling people, let's stop them, let's get away from them, let's don't have these people be part of us anymore? Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now he's not saying, keep these guys away from us. Now he's saying, we want them to fe- people to fellowship with us. Well, what about chapter 2, verse 1? What about guys that sin, that do the wrong thing? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. There's his passion. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's his patience. Or 1 John 1, 9. If you sin, you confess your sin. He's faithful and just. Forgive it. Different attitude, isn't it? We won't go to 2 John and 3 John right now, but you know in 2 John he talks about false teachers in the church and reminds the church, stay away from false teachers, but he no longer calls fire down from heaven on them. 3 John, he's got Diotrephes who's trying to be prominent in the church. And he says, I'm going to go talk to this guy to his face, but he doesn't ask the guy to get, get rid of him and call him down fire again. That has changed. He still has the passion for what's right, but he's got some patience connected with it. Acts 8, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them. They might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, that's a whole lot different than calling down fire on them, isn't it? Passion with patience. Does he still have ambition and confidence? Now, previously this time in the Gospels, we've seen them listed as Peter, James, and John, right? Acts 1 says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and amazing, the list order has changed. Now his older brother is listed after him. Well, that'd make you pretty confident, wouldn't it? I've moved up a rung. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 2, and when James, now this is James, the brother of Jesus, not his brother. When James and Cephas or Peter and John, who seem to be pillars perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now they're pillars of the church. Well, there's some confidence in it. Look what I am. 
Then look at the last phrase. Only they ask us to remember the poor. Something's changed. Well, what's changed? Remember, Jesus says this in Luke 18. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Why does John get kind of moved up here? Because John quickly, after the resurrection, learned something about humility, didn't he? In his gospel and letters, he never refers to himself by name. Never says his name at all. Looking for no credit. In his own gospel, he doesn't try to make himself look any better than he is. You can see, even when his own accounting of, of stuff that he did that he shouldn't have done, rather than try to cover it up, make himself look good, right? I only put the highlights, not the lowlights. If you read the book of Acts, you see Peter and John as recorded as speaking in many places, but everywhere there's a sermon recorded, it's Peter. Everywhere there's an important sermon to be preached, it's Peter. And John has no problem being in the background in the book of Acts. He's the only one to record Jesus washing their feet in John 13, the high picture of humility. And John makes sure he records that with Jesus' reminder, when you've seen me do this, follow my example. Do the same thing I did. Then this last one's kind of interesting. In the book of John, you'll find he shares mostly about himself in reference to his position near Jesus. When he talks about where he is, remember, he doesn't use his name, it almost always has something to do, if you look around, where he'll locate where was Jesus in relation to where I was. And not to exalt himself, but to exalt Jesus. We saw it in John 13. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved were reclining at table at Jesus' side. And you read John 20 and 21 especially, and he'll record where he was in relation to where Jesus was. Because what was most important was where Jesus was, not where John was. Ambition and confidence, still there. But now there's humility that we didn't see before. Is he still interested in truth? Here in 1 John 1. Still want truth? Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's clear he's still interested in truth, isn't he? But a couple of verses that the Apostle Paul wrote about, truth has to be connected with love. I wonder if John learned these lessons. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. We all possess truth. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Truth is great, but not connected with love. It just becomes pride. Nothing else. Ephesians 4, 6, 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head. How do we grow up in the one that we are following? Remember, disciples are trying to imitate their master. You speak the truth in love. Now look at 1 John 3, verse 11, and here's where we kind of remember John, don't we? This is a message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love 
one another. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Chapter 4, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Second John, verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Verse 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just so you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. Third John, 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. You'll find in his gospel and his letters that John will use the word agape, love, more than 80 times. When he was young as a disciple, he was interested in truth, not love. Now he's interested in truth with love. You don't throw the truth out, but it has to be connected with love. Interesting. On his ministry on earth, what's the last thing Jesus kind of told Peter himself? Remember Peter saying he went out fishing and Jesus comes and says, Peter, do you love me? And Jesus said what? Oh, you know I love you. And so Jesus told him to do what? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. What's one of the last things he told John? Yeah, some of you got it, John 19. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby at the cross, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Even that quickly, you have a guy who's changing that Jesus entrusted his mother to. Well, we know John was interested in glory. Originally without suffering. He is interested in glory with suffering. And again, a couple of verses from the Apostle Paul who says in Philippians that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Romans 8, we are the children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Did John learn this lesson? Well, here's that. They all ran at the arrest. But where was John at the crucifixion? He's the only disciple at the cross. That's the quickest turnaround of any of them. The only one recorded there was John. We know in the book of Acts, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, remember they were trying to stop them from preaching the gospel. They understood persecution was already happening. And yet in the midst of that, they have boldness. And they perceived they were uneducated common men. They were astonished that these guys were that bold, facing suffering, and still kept talking. And Revelation 1, which we'll turn to in a minute, says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Look in 1 John 3, back to 1 John. Will he take the suffering that comes with glory? Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Well, there's a different attitude, isn't it? 
It's not just about the glory. There may be suffering come with it, and he was worried, willing to take that on. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think caused the change? What caused the change in John? From what he was, which wasn't a great picture, to what he becomes, which is a great example. Well, we know the major change, don't we? Romans 8, 29. Those, he, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's part of the process where we're being transformed, and we know who's doing it. In 2 Corinthians 3, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we understand some of the change, that he was being tempered and shaped by the Spirit into the image of Christ. We know Romans 12 too. Be, re, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As he thought about what Christ taught with the help of the Holy Spirit, he evidently changed based on what he knew, what he'd heard, what he'd been taught. But I think here in 1 John 3, 16 through 18, we see a second reason for the change. And I think being at the cross changed John dramatically. He said in verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And he doesn't stop there. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. When he saw this love on the cross, it changed him. Now, we know the phrase that he refers to himself by, right? The disciple that... And our tendency is to think he said that because he was Jesus' favorite. I don't think he did. I think he recorded it that way because he was amazed the love Jesus had for him. When he knew what he was like, we saw the picture of what John was really like, and he's standing there watching his master die for him on the cross, just what he was like. I think it made a difference. From that time, he couldn't record himself as John. He reminded himself, this is the disciple. I'm one of the disciples that Jesus loved, just like I was. And he uses me anyway. Do you think he was amazed by that? I think it's more a statement of amazement, where some say, oh, it's a, he was his favorite. I don't think he was. He may be closer than others were. It didn't make him necessarily the favorite, but it did remind him every time when he used that phrase, of how honored Jesus should be for what he did in his life. I think there's a third reason in 1 John 1. I think what changed John also was learning how to serve with joy. You see, I see a lot of people today willing to serve, but they serve out of duty, not out of joy. They serve because they think they have to, or they serve for the wrong motives, they serve for the wrong reasons, and that service never changes them at all. And we saw John originally. He didn't have a whole lot of joy. He had a lot of passion. I'm not sure there's a lot of joy for what was going on. But what do you see now in chapter 1, verse 4? We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He remembered what Jesus said. He recorded it in John 15, 11. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In Jesus' prayer, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
You'll see those same things in 2 John and 3 John. 2 John 12, he says, Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. In 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. If you're not changing to be the disciple Jesus commands us to be in Scripture, you better look at whether you're serving with joy or not. Do you have any joy in it at all? If not, no change. Well, how John end his life? We know late in his life he's used by God to write five New Testament books. A gospel, three letters or epistles, and a prophecy. Revelation, which you can turn to Revelation chapter 1. We know from church history he was pastor of the church of Ephesus for a number of years. We also know that he oversaw the churches of Asia Minor. The seven churches that are recorded in Revelation were churches that John kind of oversaw all of them in kind of a supervisory position. And so he had connection with all of those churches that he writes about in Revelation. We know he's exiled to the island of Patmos. Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we know this would be a solitary, difficult life, and yet we don't see any complaining from John. It's just a statement. This is where I'm at, and it's for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Great statement, isn't it? We see God comforting and encouraging him clear to the end of his life. You look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Who was the first one to get blessed by it? John, what an encouragement that God gives him at the end of his life. And the other thing we see, he serves until he dies. He probably writes Revelation when he's maybe 91, 92. He dies when he's maybe 94. So he serves all the way up to the end. What a great example that is of serving to the end, even in suffering. So we study John. Does it give you any hope? That if we do what God asks and follow Jesus' example and obey what he says, that he can do some of the same things with us? The answer is, yeah. Let's pray. Father, we appreciate how real you give us examples in Scripture. That you don't sugarcoat anything or anybody. But then we see how great you are, how much you love us, how patient you are with us, and how much, if we will cooperate with you and with your Spirit, how much you'll change us if we'll just do those things you ask us to do. We're so thankful to you for all you do in our lives, and we pray you would help us to be the disciples you've called us to be. Amen.